It's great to be with you. My name is Andrew. I'm one of the leaders here and the pastor here at Sanctuary. Uh, I wanted to give a, a, few, um, a few other quick statements, prefaces, before I charge into the teaching uh, this morning. One is uh, that I recognize that this day is really hard for many of you. Uh, this day is one that is usually marked by celebration. I had someone email me actually this morning and go, you know, this is one of those days at church that I, I always debate whether I should come or not. And this is someone who is, I'm not actually sure of their whole story, but I would, um, it would be easy to comprehend that whatever's going on derails, deals directly either with their relationship with their mother or their ability or lack thereof with having children of their own. So I want to just first recognize that I understand that this day for some of you actually isn't filled with comfort and joy, but is actually filled with a, a lot of grief and frustration um, and sadness. And so we want to be a community that mourns with you, um, that is able to come alongside you and support you and pray for you. And so even though today my message, I'm going to take a break from the series we've been going through of Philippians and talk a bit about motherhood uh, from the perspective of, of God's character. Um, I want us all to just remember that regardless of our difficult relationships that we may have with our mom or the difficult relationship we may have with our children or our inability to have children, that we all do have a mom. And that in God's great goodness, there actually is an ideal, right? We talk a lot of times, that most of the language referring to God is masculine language in the Bible, right? The, the prayer, our Father in heaven, Jesus refers to God as his Father. That we recognize that for those of you who have really deep father wounds, right, we'll say the same sort of preface on Father's Day, is really difficult. But we have to um, understand that there is a good version there is a true, beautiful, loving, just, merciful version, picture of what fatherhood should be. And so I hope to paint that a little bit when it comes to motherhood today. And I, I want to help us uh, be able to focus in on the fact that whatever the distortion of our relationship, we get a true version of it in God. You tracking? Yeah? Sweet. All right, I'm just going to jump right in. Uh, so in talking about the nature of God, what are usually the analogies or the pictures that you get? When, it, when you hear God described, right? We said father was one. Any others they usually pick up on? Warrior, protector, deliverer. Many of the ones that often have come up for me uh, tend to be more in the masculine realm, specifically within language is what we focus on. And so uh, I want to actually look at a word and how this word is tied in uh, to a different understanding of who God is than what we often experience. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me to Exodus 34. Some of these passages will be on the screen and some will not be. Exodus 34. So this is these early people, these first people, these Jewish people uh, who are called to be a blessing to the world. And we're getting a description of what it looked like for them to walk with God. And so in this one passage in verse 6 says, And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. So right in some of the earliest documents and pictures we have about who God is or might be, we get God is compassionate. We are part of a tradition of people who believe that reality at its most core isn't luck. That reality at its most core isn't chance, and it's not some vague sense of, of, of goodness. That it actually is grounded in something as deep and rigorous and beautiful as compassion. 
You don't have to believe that. I know many in here are not followers of Jesus or followers of the Judeo-Christian understanding of God. But that is our understanding, that what's at the center of the universe is actually compassion. The same word is used later on in Deuteronomy 30, verse 3. Uh, have compa- God has compassion on you. And God will gather you again. This is God speaking to these first people. God is a God of compassion. In Lamentations, we see it again. So great is his unfailing love. God is a God of compassion and a God of unfailing love in Lamentations 30. We are part of a tradition that says that God is not indifferent. That God is not indifferent. So the word here, uh, this word compassion, I want to pull it up on the screen. Next slide. Nope. Deuteronomy 30, we hit that one. Next slide. There it is. R-H-M is what it is in the Hebrew. Uh, Over time, vowels were added, and how we would pronounce the word in English would be raham. Can you all say raham? Raham. For those of you who are having a weird, oh, go back. You got it. All right. Having a, you know, a bit too early in the morning for things like language. Um, Stay with me. Raham is is where the root of this word, uh, compassion, has a really, really interesting backstory. Uh, There's a couple places where the word raham occurs. So every time you see compassion in the Old Testament, it's this word raham. This is where it gets interesting. Jeremiah 20. In the Hebrew language, one word can mean all sorts of different things. Words are actually very flexible. The same word raham occurs in Jeremiah 20. And in Jeremiah 20, this is the text. It says, God did not kill me in the womb. He's speaking about this. There's a huge backstory, um, fighting going on between tribes. And the writer here uses the word raham, and actually it's the word womb. If you knew Hebrew and you were going through the Old Testament and you came upon this word, you would have to make decisions about the context of how to translate it. The same root of the word compassion is the word womb. God in part, is womb-like, is not a reach for us when we look at the scripture. And so I would ask this a simple question, like what does compassion actually have to do with the womb? So a few, I think, simple observations. One, the womb is the ultimate place of compassion. It would make sense in a society that has fewer words than we have in terms of making sense of, of be, or being precise about our words that we would go, well, this is a place where it's the ultimate seat of compassion. There's nothing that my baby girl could do to further her own development of any conscious sense when she was sitting in my wife's womb. You're just receiving. The womb is total care You're just simply receiving nourishment. You're being protected. You are just sitting there getting loved on if all things are happening in a healthy way. God is womb-like. There's a tradition in the scriptures of feminine language that gets attached to God. One writer, Michael Downey, a scholar, says this. The Hebrew work of a woman's womb and the word for compassion are related. And both are related to the word for mercy. Thus, the mother's intimate physical relationship with her newborn is the prime image for compassion, and hence the compassion of God in Christ. 
To speak of the compassion of God is to speak of God's quivering womb, a womb that trembles at the sight of the frailty, suffering, and weakness of the child. This is Michael Downey's exploration of this in the Old Testament. So let's explore this further. Because some of you who grew up in a tradition of Christianity might be getting unbelievably uncomfortable and wondering where I'm going. Trust me, I am not about to leave the bounds of orthodoxy. But we actually have to be honest when we look at Scripture about what does the Bible tell us about what God is like. Our goal here is to flush out what is this God really like. In Genesis 17, God is given a word that is associated most closely with a classic Amy Grant song. Any Amy Grant fans in the room, Amy Grant Christmas, greatest album ever. Ever. I am God Almighty is the word that's used in Genesis 17. The word we attach to it is El Shaddai, right? You remember El Shaddai? No? No one? I'm just like dating myself and I'm in a Christian ghetto. I am doing no contextualization at all for any of you. El Shaddai is this word that when we actually get down to it, there's a whole tradition that explores the meaning of the word. I know it's really like absolutely stunning and exciting to you to hear about this. But here's what's interesting is when you dial into the word and when you start to explore where this word comes from, it has all of these nurturing feminine overtones to it. The image that's attached to it is like a like fertility. Um, it's attached in one tradition of where this Hebrew word came from, El Shaddai, the God Almighty. It's usually linked in Old Testament, the God who provides. Um, it's like the many-breasted one. It's like th- this God is the God who nurtures and who provides and who cares, and who weans. The Jewish community sees this word as God's provision and and fertility. And so Ray Vanderlein, who's a fairly famous Christian writer who deals a lot with helping Christians understand their Jewish heritage, he says that he was with a group of of Jewish uh, boys, like young disciples, and they were learning the text, so they were memorizing the text, learning it in the original language, and they came across this word, El Shaddai, God Almighty, how it's often translated in your Bible, and he said that they all started giggling. They just started giggling because they attached the word with what they were learning in the tradition they were part of with, oh, God's the many-breasted one. You can imagine how a bunch of little kids attach breasts, attach God, and they lose it. God is like a mother who is caring, nurturing, and loving like a mother. Now, these images, before I go any further, can be really helpful in describing God. But Jesus said that God is spirit. So let's just stop right now. God is actually spirit. Spirit has no shape and no form. It has no physical essence. God decides to make himself known as a man in Jesus. But God, in essence, is beyond male and beyond female. Or perhaps we could say it more accurately. God transcends yet includes what we know is male and female. God transcends and yet includes what we know as male and female. We see this in the creation poem in the beginning of Scripture. So God created man. This is Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We tend to run through this passage, for those of you who study the Bible at all, But this is significant. God created us in his own image. So when we think that one gender has the sort of monopoly on the characteristics of God, we have just violated scripture. Whatever it is that makes God God is fully expressed when you see both man and woman. 
So, a quick aside, if you don't have her in leadership, if you don't have women who are offering wisdom, who are a voice, and who have a perspective in your community, then you're actually missing something central to the very core of who God is. We actually are missing out on an understanding of God. God's above gender, um, but we see in gender what God actually looks like. So a few other places that I want to just help us understand. Uh, when we look at the spirit in scripture, how many of you have heard the term spirit? The Holy Spirit, right? This is pretty classic Christian theology, ruach or pneuma. We see different pictures, always described in the feminine. That doesn't mean the Holy Spirit's a girl. But you realize actually throughout tradition, the Holy Spirit has often classically been defined in the female terms. You have all sorts of tradition, and I have like three pages of notes here that I'm not going to read through in regards to that. Just fascinating stuff in regards to how the first church talked about the Spirit. You know the U2 song, She Moves in Mysterious Ways? It's all right, it's all right, it's all right. No? Dunkin' Donuts and no U2 fans. I'm like striking out. Anyway, it's about the Holy Spirit. Isaiah, um, or in Proverbs, for those of you, I know a bunch of you are studying through the book of Proverbs. Wisdom is always personified as a she. Isaiah, it gets really good. So these people, these first people that we're talking about who have this view of God as compassionate, as womb-like, a God who, who nurtures and cares, who sustains. In Isaiah, these first people are lured away from their destiny to what seems attractive at the time. They have a mission and a calling to be a blessing to the world. They get called into this self-centered way of living. They find themselves in exile. Things don't go how they're supposed to go. And God invites them back to their original purpose. So as he's speaking to them, uh, he says this. And, and I would argue the story of the first people is not that different from our story. We lose our purpose. We forget where we're headed. We become incredibly self-centered when there's mission in front of us. We even make the vision and mission in front of us for our lives incredibly self-centered and miss out on what we're to be a part of. And the writer, Isaiah, says this in the voice of God saying, I will extend peace to her. And he's talking about the first people. You will nurse as a mother comforts her child, so will I comfort you. God, when wanting to use the language of come home, when God wanted to use the language of, look, I need to redirect you on the path you should be on, God uses the image of a mother and her child. These are some of the, like, the sweetest and tenderest pictures that we have about the character of God. And we need not be afraid as we speak of his strength in a, in a sort of bombast sort of way, as we speak of, as we speak of uh, the power and sovereignty and awe and fear of the God Almighty. We can't lose these issues, of these pictures, I'm sorry, of nurturing, of care, of provision. Uh, it's, uh, let me give you one more example before I move on. Isaiah 46 I think the scripture's on the screen here. This is the same prophet, and he says, listen to me, O house of Jacob. He says, listen to me again, referring to these first people. Uh, you who have been born by me from your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age, I am he. Even when you turn gray, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear, I will carry and will save. Many writers have looked at this passage and seen this womb-like feminine energy and then still referring to God in the classical sense of as he as unbelievably 
an unbelievably powerful picture of what we read about in Genesis. This is the fullness of God you see reflected in both genders. And the reason why this passage is so interesting is because these early people, right, they would have had um, a, a real temptation to follow the gods of other cultures. These, cult, these gods that were physically in front of them. So one, it demonstrates God's superior over them, but two, it reiterates the sort of divine promise to support and redeem God's maternal bond of compassion and power to protect them. Idol worshipers would carry their gods on cattle. So they would go, right, nomadic culture, they would go from place to place to place, and they would carry their different statues that they had as gods to different places. And then Isaiah drops this reference, which again, for us, doesn't seem that powerful, but would have been such a paradigm shift that actually this God, he carries you in his womb because that's easy to understand, right? This is the imagery and the poetry that we get describing God. Psalm 131 the writer says, my heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or have things too wonderful for me. Verse two, but I have calmed and quieted myself. I am like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. This is one writer saying, this is what, when I am like lockstep with God, this is what it feels like to be just protected and covered and nurtured and loved by the God of the universe. This is powerful imagery for us. And for some of us, this is really hard to grab onto because this idea of being nurtured and weaned and cared for and protected. Right, Jesus is a, uses the example in verse 37 of uh, saying, I long to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you are not willing. So even Jesus uses this feminine language to describe God. Look, I want, this is how I want to take you in. This is how I want to protect you. This is how I want to care for you. Whether or not you believe this, we hold as followers of Jesus, as believers in this one God, that this is what he's like. This is what's at the center of the universe. Is a God who, who cares for us, who calls us back home, like a mom like yelling to the kids to come back in like a mom who goes out and brings them in to care for them, mother who protects, a God who is compassionate, a God who is womb-like. And just before you, you think that all the feminine imagery is all like kind of weak or, or how we usually physically describe as weak, one, any of you who've ever given birth are probably fully aware that weakness is not something you could ever really attach to being a woman. But my favorite, my favorite example is in Hosea. And I just say this to you as more of a joke, but in Hosea 13.8, God is, mother, is literally mother bear. Like, look up this passage. It's, this is the picture that's described, a fierce image associated with this, like, a mother being attached to her cubs. God's rage against those who don't have gratitude is that of a bear who's, like, robbed of her cubs. It's like, you guys are just not grateful, and God, like, wants to, like, bring you back in, and God is so protective of you, you get this image of a mother bear. Any of you ever seen a swan before try to protect the, what do you call swan's children? They're not ducklings, they're swanlings. What? Stignets? Signets. Learn something today. Signets. So um, a friend of mine are, are uh, canoeing up this river down in South Kingstown towards the Great Swamp, and we come across a, a, a I'm assuming the mother swan and cygnets. 
And we, I already knew going in, like you hear stories like swans are kind of brutal, right? Sort of like the mother bear. I'd heard these stories and they look so beautiful and profound. So we like did this slow crawl around the outside of the pond. And it was sort of as we were coming back in to where the, the river narrowed again, it was in this kind of, uh, I don't know, cul-de-sac of sorts of where the water opened up and then there's this really small place out. As we started to like beeline it for that, they decided to head in the same direction. And this swan turned and it didn't like attack, but it gave like this sort of, have you ever heard a swan like growl? I, I don't know what the correct term, like what's happening there, but it scared the daylights out of us, like to the point of like, ah! like, and we'd heard these stories of swans like breaking like legs and arms of people. Hosea 13, like a mother bear, right? Like a swan protecting her kids. This is the character of God. Not just protecting from the outside, but longing for them to be on the path that they were made to be on. We have God throughout scripture trying to explain to us what he is like. And he says, you see me in this, you see me in this, you see me in a mother and a child. You get a glimpse, a God who is beyond gender, and yet we get an image of him in both the male and the female. There's something specifically, though, about motherhood that helps us understand the very character of God. So let's return to where we started, this word raham womb-like, merciful, compassionate. As we think of the womb as a place of protection and creation and nourishment, it's also a place of what? Transition. It's a place of tremendous change from which we're thrust out into a world that is bigger and brighter and more terrifying than anything we could ever imagine. The mercy and the compassion of God in which we live and move and have our being sends us into something more and something beyond. The love of others, the sacrifice of self, the challenge of forgiveness, the struggle for justice. There's a shift that's happening in a God who is compassionate. It's not just to care and to provide, but to send out. One writer says this in reflecting on motherhood. She says, I remember in the last few weeks of both my pregnancies when strangers and friends would remind me that it's easier to care for a baby while he's still inside. She was about to have a son. And it's partly true. While I was pregnant, my baby slept and ate and grew all on their own without my having to rouse for 2 a.m. feedings, change their diapers, or wash their clothes. But while I loved them then with the intimate, mysterious fire of a woman for the child within her, I loved them so much more this side of birth. It's harder and messier to parent them now, but more beautiful and rewarding too. I just wonder if that's what it's like for God. It's like messy to give us choice. It's messy to allow us to screw up the lives of other people. It's messy, but I wonder if there's something in the relationship and the loving engagement that we have with God that to God is worth it. She goes on, she says, I watch my baby now starting to pull himself up and toys down, feeding myself and trying to eat things he shouldn't. With every milestone he passes, he increases his capacity for learning, but also his vulnerability for getting hurt. What I think she's saying is that the world can be a painful and destructive place too, but he still lives with God's, within God's womb, within God's care, within God's compassion. A compassion that cradles him close, but a compassion that also pushes her son out. And so I don't really know this yet as a dad of a seven-month-old, 
But I'm guessing like a parent, God longs to hold us safe, but delights in our going out, knowing that we are always carried within love larger than ourselves. Knowing that we are always carried within a love larger than ourselves. So if you're here and, and you're, you're a mother or have been a mother, whether it was a, a, a miscarriage or you have like a healthy young family, whether your children are long grown or, or you've adopted or, or you're a spiritual mother to someone, um, one of the leaders in our community, Sarah Wignall, wanted to write you a letter in light of some of the things I was going to share about today. So I, I want to read this to you. So this is from, from Sarah, who's a mother of two. She couldn't be here today. She writes, in June, I will have been a mom for 12 years. I still remember the summer our beautiful, very colicky Millie was born. My parents bought us a dogwood tree to commemorate her birth. And I remember one exceptionally difficult evening strolling in the backyard near our tree. Looking at that slight and delicate dogwood, the trunk not much bigger than a branch itself, with a screaming baby in my arms, I wondered if I would survive until the flowers bloomed the next spring. Clinging to hope that we would endure infancy just as all the new parents who have marched before us, I thought about the tree. Realizing that as seasons bloomed maturely in that sapling, so it would in my infant daughter. That when we had established and stately tree in our yard, so we would have a child becoming a woman. This promise alighting on my sleep-deprived mind was humbling, exhilarating, frightening, hopeful even. We moved from that house a couple years after that first summer. So I've not seen our baby tree grow. Time has certainly been marked in my daughter, though, who is but a faint memory of that screaming infant in my arms. My journey as a mom isn't over yet, and as my daughters become more self-sufficient, I experience my role maturing, but not diminishing. It is difficult to share my thoughts about motherhood because it's everything. It's my sleep. If I stay up too late, then I won't be able to get up in the morning with the girls. It's the food on my plate. I want to be a good example for my daughters so they will grow up to be healthy, conscious consumers. It's my friendships. There is a great responsibility in teaching my girls how to love how to extend grace, how to speak truth. It's my running. She's a runner. I want my girls to find their own passions and pursue them. It's my job. I want my girls to have integrity and know how to work responsibly. It's my marriage. My girls need to know how to be treated, how to be loved, how to love, how to forgive, how to receive forgiveness. And it's my relationship with God. I want my girls to understand that this one relationship is the root of everything else we become. Being a mom, I've spent the last decade of my life in a lot of mom places. Playdates, the children's museum, the zoo, too many parks to count, kids' movies, kid parties, preschool, elementary school. I see you ladies out there. You see me too. Sometimes we see each other in the grocery store yelling at our kid who just cannot remember to stay nearby. Sometimes we catch each other at the park, clickety-clacking away on our phones instead of pushing our children on the swings. Phone. Thankfully, you couldn't see me last year when Lola, simply, that's her youngest daughter, could not get going one morning before school. I was so fed up with her pokiness that I ripped her pajama shirt right off, literally. The four big green buttons flew in all directions across the room, and her eyes were as wide as saucers before they spilled tears. I came home from work and remorsefully sewed each button back on. 
We actually laugh now about the morning mom lost her cool, but it wasn't too funny that day. But I've also seen you at the Children's Museum, pretending to buy plastic food from your child while she plays grocer. I've seen you at the park sitting on a horse, much too small for you, galloping to the moon. Things like that are possible at a park. I've seen you drop to your knees just so you are just the right height to consume your child with your embrace when she's fallen and scraped her knee. I've seen you eating ice cream before lunch because sometimes it's just okay to break the rules. I guess my point is this. For myself and from what I've seen, this mom thing seems to expose the best and the worst of who I am. I can't fake my way through this role. It's raw, it's real, it's beautiful, it's sometimes ugly, even a little horrifying, but it's always full. It's always brimming with potential for me to emerge changed, better, more patient, more loving, more compassionate. We talk in our community at Sanctuary about the kingdom coming, that in bits and pieces it's happening now. The kingdom will not arrive spontaneously and all at once someday, but it's seeping in through the cracks and the darkness, invading small moments of our lives right now, and I think that's true. And I think we get to reflect our God and his kingdom when we play out this mom gig, when we hold our screaming infant and can offer nothing but comfort that sometimes God offers. When, to the embarrassment of our children, We are their biggest cheerleader. We get to reflect his desire to encourage us. And as we choose to love our children, even when they disobey and disappoint, we are reenacting two of my favorite things about God, his grace and his unconditional love. Upon reflection, the journey really is pretty incredible. It doesn't mean it's easy, and it certainly doesn't mean I enjoy having my own weaknesses exposed when I fall short of all that I want to be as a mom. And yes, sometimes the thought, showering without having to answer, yells through the bathroom door sounds downright decadent. And the burden of balancing my own dreams and fears would be so much lighter without having to consider these girls who are dependent on me. Just being able to write this letter without pausing to answer again how much longer we will be in the car is a level of focus I don't even remember anymore. (laughs) But I, we... Moms, we get to be comfort, encouragement, unconditional love, and grace. And in extending these gifts, I would argue we also receive them. From our children, sometimes. From our father, always. Seems like a pretty good deal. So mamas, happy day to all of you. May you feel an extra measure of Jesus shining through you as you drum on pots and pans, play dress up, build blanket forts, and read bedtime stories. God is in it all. Enjoy breathing his love into your children. As a mother comforts her child, so I will comfort you. Might we, uh, this morning, as we spend a few minutes reflecting on these passages that have uh, just tried to walk us through quickly, might we actually just say, God, would you open me up to the places that I need to be comforted? May I, as I think of the positive images of motherhood or as I think of all that uh, Sarah just shared with us, might I have a better, more full understanding of who you are 
And ultimately, we have this really crazy belief here in the church that um, when we cry out to God, he answers us, that God knows what it means to meet us in this place. And so for you, whether it's just the honesty of saying, okay, God, I, I know that I get in the way all the time, but I want to just still myself long enough to know and to feel and understand your comfort, your protection, your care, and your jealous love for me. So I'm going to pray for us, and a few questions are going to come on the screen. Some footage that I put together with some of the passages are going to come up, and the point of the next four minutes is just to be still as a community and just to simply sit inside of this imagery that we have of the character of God and allow that, allow just the scripture to wash over us to meet you wherever you're at in whatever situations you got going on, whether it's brokenness or joy. Might we be comforted? Might we be comforted? Let's pray. Lord, open our eyes that we might see you. Open our ears, Lord. our ears that we might hear you. Open our hearts, Lord, that we might know you more. Wake us up to the beauty and wonder that sits at the beginning, at the middle, at the center, and at the end of all things. We come to you as our true comforter. It's the one who cares more than anyone else.